Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10 Sequence start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts. And my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and Fred Watson, the brains behind the operation. Hello to you. Hello, fellow Space Nut. How are you doing? <laughs> nice to I'm see you and talk to you again, Fred. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am quite well. I've uh, just come back from a little place called Broken Hill. Now, most Australians would be aware of Broken Hill, a mining community in the very, very far west of New South Wales. But uh, for those overseas, we're talking a place like I'm in the central parts of New South Wales and to drive from here to Broken Hill is at least eight hours driving and there is almost nothing between here and there. A couple of towns, but that's about it. Um, mass, incredible mining history, but uh, what a place. What a Just a, a staggering place. And their main tourist attraction is a big pile of garbage that they've built up over 100 years of mining and they put a cafe on it. I mean, that's pretty cool. I'd almost but, say uh, that, that is so American, but we did it here. <laughs> yeah, it's really So, so um, Andrew, did you get to Silverton? I did Silverton. not. I didn't have time. Everyone keeps asking me that. But no, I didn't get yeah. to Silverton. I, I will one day. Yeah, I went to, um, I did a gig once in the Silverton pub. Oh, did you? I did a science in the pub. Silverton's even further west than Broken Hill is. Yeah, it's almost uh, on the it's... South Australian border. Almost. That's, that's right. Very, very, very remote. Yeah. We have a pub there, and we did science in the pub. And then afterwards, they somehow conned me into this uh, this trick, which was the, the Silverton Challenge, <laughs> which basically means you end up with a bucket of water down the front of your trousers. <laughs> that, and, sounds about, um, I, that sounds about right. I, was, I have to say, I was not highly impressed because I'd just done two two and a half hours of hard work for him on science in yeah. the pub. <laughs> but it's a pretty hot it climate the last... out there. I mean, there's the, not much vegetation. There's a lot of desert and a lot of red earth and uh, there is. Yeah, quite an amazing place. But, um, I enjoyed it. Now, today, Fred, we're going to be talking about the, um, the, the death of Stephen Hawking, which came as a, a bit of a shock to many, I suppose. They, uh, no one really anticipated it. Uh, we also talk about galaxies because they all seem to rotate at around the same rate in time, even though they're all different sizes, which is a bit strange. Uh, harpooning space junk, which is a lot of fun. And uh, if we've got time, we'll talk about, oh, this, this is, you know, this is even making my brown, uh, brain bounce around a bit. Organic compounds created by stellar winds and red giant stars. You got it in one. Yeah. Uh, we'll go back there if we've got time. But let's talk about Stephen Hawking. Uh, what an amazing uh, man. And, uh, I mean, so amazing they made a movie about the guy. Uh, but uh, just uh, probably one of the, the leaders in the modern era in terms of his thinking and his theories and, and the work that he's done in astrophysics and 
black hole theory and I mean the list is long he's an he was just an incredible individual indeed and it, it it is a great loss um i have to say it's not that much of a surprise stephen has been you know he's been suffering in different health uh, if i put it that way i mean he's been in pretty poor health for the last 50 odd years but um in terms of his uh his well-being i think he's gone up and down a bit in the last few months we've had a couple of scares where people have said stephen's not very well um and finally he succumbed to basically to that illness that uh, he was diagnosed with at the age of 22 back in the in the 1960s he was given three years to live yes. uh, and uh, died at the age of 76 so he's done extraordinarily well uh, and i think you're right um Stephen's name is up there among the Einsteins of this world and the, you know, the other great names of astrophysics. I think a lot of the reason for that <clears throat> is his ability to, to have the common touch, to, to be able to put things in terms that people can understand. And that was exemplified really in his book, um, A Brief History of Time. Uh, many, many people started that book, but far finish fewer... It finished it that's right and um Stephen Stephen always called it the the best never read book uh, of all time yes. um he um I, I think so I think yes that ability to to communicate his science to people and, and I think in some ways that was more significant than than his principal discoveries although they certainly were of great importance in our understanding particularly of black holes because mm. He was the person who figured out back in the 1970s that black holes can actually evaporate. They can disappear. They, issue, they emit something called Hawking radiation, uh, which is totally counterintuitive because you expect a black hole that, um, you know, from which nothing, including light itself, how could it evaporate? How could it leak something out? But it does, and it does it because of quantum physics. That's actually what causes Hawking radiation. So if that had been his... His only contribution, I suspect he wouldn't have been the towering figure that he became. It was his ability to communicate that. Plus, of course, the fact that you've got this absolutely planet-sized brain locked up in a body that is to totally dysfunctional, that, yes. that will only allow the movement of two or three muscles. Um, and I think that had very, very wide public appeal. Yeah, and uh, not an uncontroversial figure. Uh, he certainly had his opinions about uh, religion to the point of making public statements about the existence of God. Uh, and uh, even since his death, people have uh, heard about some of his uh, theories in terms of um, multiverse existence. And yeah. you and I have talked about multiple universes before. Uh, and he, he, um, I think there was a paper released uh, only this month in, re in that regard. Right. Uh, so yeah, incredible individual. Um, he, that, that, that's right. As you say, was um, you know, he's fairly forthright in his in his opinions. He said yeah. some fairly, uh, you know, scathing things about religion, which um, I think showed a slight lack of sensitivity but um who can blame him for that when he's locked up in a in a body that doesn't work yeah. he uh, he's he was well known um for his um hooning around in that wheelchair and, and my one claim to fame regarding stephen hawking is that he once ran over me in the wheelchair <laughs> in a in a town square in cambridge actually it was in the main street of cambridge i, I used to work there and live nearby and i was shopping one saturday morning this 
damn wheelchair came out of nowhere from the crowds and totally disregarded the fact that there was a human being in front of it. And uh, I didn't hit the ground, but I really had to dodge out of the way very quickly and, and only realized, you know, in the split second that I saw his face who it was, but it was Stephen all right. And I think he did that all the time. Yeah, probably. So, well, then who, who can blame him? <laughs> he was always in a hurry. He always had a lot to do. And I, I think uh, he was a very focused uh, person and uh, work kind of dominated his life and, and that's understandable too uh, what about his legacy now that he's gone uh, where will he stand in the history of humanity uh, we, we look at Albert Einstein as, as being one of the greatest thinkers of, uh, of the history of, of humanity I suspect Stephen Hawking will end up if not already in that realm Yes, there's no doubt about that. And and you know he some of his <clears throat> some of his um, ideas and predictions and prognoses were fairly controversial. One of which was that we really have to look after ourselves here on Earth. He he uh, a number of times was pretty um, or made pessimistic utterances, if I can put it that way, about the longevity of humankind because we are vulnerable. We you know we if we don't wipe ourselves out there's all kinds of natural occurrences that could seriously threaten uh, humankind things like um, runaway viruses or or major supervolcano eruptions or asteroid impact or even a supernova explosion nearby all of those yeah. could fry us in one way or another and so he was very much of the opinion that we needed a lifeboat that we needed to get off the planet um, that's one reason why he was a great supporter of Yuri Milner, uh, whose breakthrough initiatives involve, you know, sending spacecraft to try and find out whether whether the, the, the planets of, um, of Proxima Centauri are, are habitable and whether there are living organisms there. It's, it was very much up there among the, the, you know, the forward thinkers of this world, and everybody admires that. So I think you're quite right. His legacy will be extremely long-lasting, um, even if it's, you know, even if it's only for Hawking radiation, it is still a major, major step forward. Yeah, incredible man, and I don't think we're going to stop in the short term hearing about his achievements and uh, and like he was still publishing uh, pretty yep, well right up to his death, which is uh, just yep. amazing. And uh, he he will be very much missed, and um, a, a name that just I, I think most of the people that listen to this podcast uh, don't have to ask about. You, know, you hear the name Hawking, you know straight away who yeah, we're talking about. So uh, yeah. uh, what an amazing man, and um, uh, passed away now at uh, at seventy six. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Next up, Fred, we're going to talk about the rotation of galaxies. Now, we live on a planet that rotates um, once a day, and it orbits the sun once a year, and so on and so forth. But everything within our solar system and within our um, arm of the galaxy, and the galaxy as a whole, is rotating. And what they have just discovered is that all galaxies are rotating at pretty much the same rate, regardless of size. And this, this must be quite surprising. Um, and the, the obvious question is why, and you're going to tell us the exact answer because you know. But uh, it, it's quite an amazing discovery and, and quite unusual, I would think. Not only that, but it's led by um, Australians. It's a it's a 
discovery that's come from the kind of radio telescope world or the radio astronomy world in, in Western Australia, which is great stuff. There are collaborators actually in both the United States and China as well, but uh, Australia is the center of this work. And it's some work that has been done looking at a sample of galaxies with radio telescopes. So that's the, you know, the, 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 the key ingredient of this. They're, they're, um, the, the observations have been made on the basis of what the galaxies contain in terms of their hydrogen gas. <clears throat> so you can do that. You can look at galaxies in a number of different ways. We think of galaxies as being huge aggregations of stars with this lovely spiral structure. We live in one of them. We call it the Milky Way galaxy, and we're about halfway from the center to the edge. Mm -hmm. um, galaxies don't always come like that, but this that this study has looked at. And um, I love the, the title of the paper, which has been produced, um, the, the, the scholarly paper. It's in a journal called The Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, which is one of the leading journals in astronomy, believe it or not. Uh, it's called Cosmic Clocks, a tight radius velocity relationship for H1 selected galaxies. And that kind of tells you all you need to know, really, um, if, you, if you know the gobbledygook. The H1 selected galaxies means these galaxies have been ob observed with radio telescopes. But the tight radius velocity relationship tells you that basically you've got, um, you know, this, this link between the size of a galaxy and its rotational speed and the bottom line is that galaxies kind of all rotate uh, about once in a billion years um, uh, but that's there's a caveat with that as well because that rotation is as measured by the outer limits of the galaxy the very outer limits of the disk and that's not always very easy to find yeah um, where does the galaxy stop? They kind of just fizzle out, really, in, in space, a bit like the Earth's atmosphere does. It, it doesn't just stop. It, it gets thinner and thinner as you go away from the Earth. So likewise, the distribution of stars in galaxies gets thinner and thinner as you get away from the center of, ga of the galaxy. But you can kind of define a radius which is the, you know, the, the sort of extremity of the galaxy. And, and incidentally, there was another surprise that came out of this work, which was that at that radius, at that great distance from the center of the galaxy, whatever galaxy it is you're looking at, um, there were far more old stars out there than we expected. We usually think of the old stars as being concentrated near the, near the center of a galaxy. That and would the, make sense. That would be logical. Yeah, yeah, the younger stars are the ones that form the spiral arms. When you look at colour pictures of spiral galaxies, Andrew, and you'll have done this, I'm sure, and perhaps wondered why, the spiral arms are always blue. Yeah. And the blue, the blue colour comes from really young and kind of vigorous young stars, stars that are, uh, are only going to last a few million years. So they've got to be young for you to see them at all. Um, so they, they dominate in the disks of galaxies, but it's, there's a surprisingly high content of old stars have turned up at the edge of the disks, and this is another uh, bit of this research. However, to cut to the chase, yes, um, every galaxy, no matter what its size is, rotates about once in a billion years. Uh, and that suggests that um, there is some kind of intrinsic relationship between the, the size of a galaxy and the speed at which it rotates. It's, of course, something very useful to us because um, we can. all we need to do now is measure the size of a galaxy and we know what its rotation is going to be a billion years. Yeah. Um, 
a slightly more complicated picture than that. And, and once again, it, it delves into the realm of this mysterious stuff called dark matter, which... Um, I was going to say that. I wish I had, you. because I would have sounded oh, so much more intelligent. But um, I was going, to, not, I was going to go too, there. It's not too late. You can say it now. Is it due to dark matter? <laughs> well, is it? <laughs> yes, it uh, is. It probably is, yeah. So, so dark matter has an influence on the way galaxies rotate. And in fact, we know one of the, the reasons why we are so convinced that dark matter exists, even though we can't detect it in any other way than its gravity. One of the reasons why we're convinced it exists is because galaxies don't fly apart. Mm. Um, they, they, if all that was there was all we could see, or the other way around, if all we could see was all that was there, um, they, there wouldn't be enough material in them to hold them together. They would simply fly apart as they rotate. So we surmise the existence of these mysterious atom or subatomic particles in copious numbers, which actually cluster, if you like, around the centre of a galaxy and hold it together. What you're and actually that's... saying, Fred, is that I need to get some dark matter, incorporate it into the rotation of my golf swing, and then I'll be able to keep it together. Is that what you're, <laughs> that's what you're saying? Well, I, thought, I always thought you had, and that was the problem. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the main if, if you ever let go of the golf club and it doesn't fly away from you, that's what dark matter does. Right. <laughs> but See, I knew that'd be a good reason to bring up golf. That's right, bringing in golf. Um, yeah, so we we know that galaxies rotate in a, in a fashion that tells you that there must be something else there. Um, but it, I think it's the first time that this relationship between the, the overall rotation speed of a galaxy and its size has been demonstrated. We, um, at our distance from the centre of our galaxy, okay, we're on a planet that orbits the sun. The sun is about halfway from the centre of our galaxy to the edge. And we go around the centre of our galaxy about once in 200 million years. So that's about one-fifth of what we expect the rotation to be at the edge of the galaxy. Um, and that kind of ties in with what we know about galaxies. It sort of, it, it fulfills the, you know, the, uh, the measurements that we've made on other galaxies so far before this study came along. So it's interesting work. Um, you suggested at the beginning that I was going to explain why this should be. Yep. And um, well, probably we should move on to another topic now. <laughs> So we don't really know. <laughs> because nobody knows. It's dark, dark matter did it. I think dark matter probably did do it. And I think when the theoretical astronomers get their heads around this, as they inevitably will, they'll say, yes, it's one teaspoonful of dark matter to every fifth of a teaspoonful of normal matter. There's that probably, makes... there, there is another theory. And this um, dates back to the era of um, the great astronomer Herschel who, when he couldn't answer a question, said, well, God did it. Uh, it's, a, it's a good answer, if mm. you're hurting. Um, it, it, it sort of carries a bit less weight in um, 2018 yes. than what it did in, uh, in 1818 when Herschel said it. was a good answer back then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right, but, yeah, we're all rotating at around the same rate, which is, um, well, in, at the same time, regardless of size if you can get your head around that, which I'm struggling to do. But then again, I can't hit a golf ball, so what would I know? <laughs> <laughs> this is Space Nuts uh, with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, 
ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Okay, Fred. Now, as humans tend to do, we make problems for ourselves. The more ingenious we get, the more things we create that cause problems for us down the track, such as rubbish. And we certainly have that issue on planet Earth because uh, getting rid of our refuse is an ongoing problem. But uh, as you and I have discussed uh, many times there's refuse beyond our atmosphere that's floating around out there and it's getting bigger and more messy. And so what do we do about it? Well, we send a harpoon into space and we catch it all or some of it. That's the plan, apparently. Uh, it's certainly one of the plans and it's the one that's hit the headlines this week uh, because <clears throat> the the harpoon has been tested, <laughs> not yet in space. That will happen next year. But the device that has been built by, it's actually a subsidiary of Airbus, that giant aerospace company um, in Europe. Um, they have basically been developing a device that will allow a satellite, a kind of killer satellite, I suppose you'd call it, mm. to approach another spacecraft and harpoon it and then do something, and what that is, is, I suppose, depends on the circumstances, do something to bring that spacecraft down. All you've got to do really is slow it down so that its orbit decays, and very quickly that, um, that decay turns into something where the orbit 
slips lower and lower into the Earth's atmosphere. So there's more friction with the atmosphere. It slows it down even more and it drops down further and you, you basically get re-entry and it will burn up in re-entry. Mm. Um, you can do that actually with um, something like a parachute almost, um, even though the, the air at the top of the atmosphere is very rarefied. If you have a big enough kind of solar sail attached to the harpoon, then it will indeed uh, apply a drag to the spacecraft. Or you could use another spacecraft that's got retro rockets on it to, to slow down uh, its motion. And, Either way, and it makes sense because, as you have told me in the past, uh, orbiting Earth is simply a continuous fall, but you do it at a rate that you never actually fall back to Earth. But if you slow down, you will You're fall, back, fall to back. Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, it's a it's a process that self um, you know it, it's self generating because as you look, drop lower into the atmosphere. There's more friction with the atmosphere, so you slow down more and you drop further down into the atmosphere, and so the process goes on. Um, and it, it, it very quickly, uh, you reach temperatures that basically mean that the object in question is burning up, mm. and, and you don't get any debris falling to Earth. You just get a bit of small amount of pollution in the atmosphere. Um, why are the Airbus so keen on developing something for the European Space Agency? The answer is because the European Space Agency, excuse me, has a particularly embarrassing problem in the shape of a spacecraft called Envisat, or Envisat, you could perhaps say. It's an environmental satellite. It's spelled E-N-V-I-S-A-T, so Envisat will be the normal way to pronounce it. And that um, basically is a big spacecraft uh, monitoring the environment. But uh, six years ago, its power systems failed completely and it just died in orbit. They didn't and pay so, the power bill. <laughs> could be. They just ignored well, the you know, if they were If they were being charged by an Australian company, they would have got cut off real quick. Yeah, well, it's your solar panels. It does actually have solar panels. I suspect something nasty happened to one of those, and that's what uh, what caused Probably the power. got hit by space junk, Fred. It may have been space junk, indeed. That's exactly right, because that's the problem. Yeah. Space junk tends to be self-replicating. Um, and, you know, there is this thing called the Kessler syndrome, which is this nightmare scenario where two big satellites collide with one another, create gazillions of smaller bits, which then go on to collide with other satellites, and you've got this runaway uh, devastation, effect. Yeah. Uh, devastation of, of all orbital um, hardware. And that's, so a, that, that's a real concern. I mean, that's not just a, an idea. They, they think that could happen if indeed, we don't clean yeah. up. Well, that's right. In fact, there have been examples of, you know, there, there, there was a, an accident. It's probably about seven years ago now. Two spacecraft collided over the North Pole, a Russian um, a Russian. Uh, I think the Russian spacecraft was defunct, but it was it collided with um, an Iridium spacecraft, which is a, was an active uh, communications sa uh, satellite. The two collided over the North Pole, and you got two plumes of debris, which continued in their respective orbits. No, that, that's not true, because Vladimir Putin said it didn't happen. <laughs> I won't go there. But uh, <laughs> um, you're, you, you, know, you, you get the picture. Yeah. Uh, Collisions in space are a very bad thing. And re returning to the European Space Agency, so they have this embarrassment because Envisat weighs about eight tonnes. It's not a small piece of kit. It's about as big as a bus or something, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Size of a bus, indeed. Mm -hmm. And it's in orbit. It's um, out of control. We know where it is because 
everything bigger than about uh, 100 millimeters or four inches across is monitored by agencies like NORAD, the, the radar, you know, North American radar uh, center. And so we know where something like 20 or 30,000 bits of debris of that size are. Um, and that's what enables astronauts to, to slightly move the orbit of the International Space Station from time to time if something big is coming their way. Yeah. Uh, so we know where Envisat is, but um, what we want to do is to avoid leaving it up there give it, and, and increasing the risk that, that something else will run into it and you get this huge plume of debris uh, in orbit. So uh, that would be the first target for any kind of space harpooning exercise. So the Airbus concern has been developing this space harpoon. It's been tried and tested and shown off uh, on Earth. Um, I think there is a mission planned for next year to actually try it out, to try it in action with um, with a, a you know a dummy uh, target satellite. You put them both in orbit. You aim the harpoon. What it does is it's it's got a, a sharp point on one end, and this thing's about a meter long. Mm. Um, but it also has barbs, just like any harpoon has, and they're spring loaded. So this thing penetrates the outer shell of a spacecraft because it hits it with enough force. Uh, but then once it's got you know, that penetration completed, there is a mechanical interlock that opens up the barbs. So you can't pull it back out again through the hole that it's made. And that means you can grab it with a tether. And as I said, either attach the tether to a solar sail or a, or a you know, a, a, um, another spacecraft that will break its motion so that it degenerates back into uh, the Earth's atmosphere and burns up. Um, I suspect if they have a successful test when they do this exercise, very quickly there will be an exercise to bring down Envisat and hopefully you and I'll talk about that down the track because that'll be good news to get this really highly um, dangerous piece of space junk out of the way and I think once that's happened then we might see a lot of activity with defunct spacecraft being brought back down to earth to try and clear up the problem of it. Yeah because the reality is if we don't do anything uh, from what I've read it'll reach a point where we won't have any room left to launch satellites. I mean, that's just yeah. mind-boggling in itself. Yes, that's right. It's uh, There won't be any safe orbits left because they'll all be at risk from these collisions. Yeah, exactly. Quite incredible. Uh, well, it's good that someone's doing something about it. I hope they're getting paid. That would be I'm good. sure they are. <laughs> more, than, more than you and I do, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, garbage men do get paid well. And they deserve it. <laughs> they certainly deserve Space it. Space garbage, man, especially. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, the meaning of life. Organic compounds are created by stellar winds and red giant stars. End of story. See you next week. Yeah, see you next time. <laughs> what's, That's right. what's going on? Well, it, it, this is great stuff. We we know that um, what we call highly evolved stars, that means stars very late in their lives. Um, and the sun will go through a phase like this in, in about four billion years' time. Uh, they on, turn into what... I'm just going to set my watch. Done. Yeah, yeah. Put I, it, I've put got it one of those diary. smart watches, so it'll tell me when that happens. <laughs> if your smart watch goes for four billion years, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> um Yes, yeah, so, so put that date in your diary, four billion years' time. The sun will become a red giant star, and it will, it, it will basically swell up 
um, and will get rather cool compared with what it's like now. And I mean cool in the in the um, in the temperature sense rather than anything else. The sun's always cool in I every other sense. I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but what it means is that you've got this sort of warm environment in its outer atmosphere. And we're talking, you know, about temperatures only measured in hundreds of degrees rather than thousands of degrees as, as the temperature of the sun is now. Mm. Um, and you've got an atmosphere which is very, very rich in carbon because carbon is produced late in the life of a star. In fact, it's produced early in the life of a star. But by the time it gets to the end, there is much more carbon, uh, you know, than, than the original uh, quota. So that carbon can, in those lukewarm temperatures, can react with other atoms like hydrogen and like oxygen to make complex molecules. We call molecules containing carbon, we call them organic molecules. And they're organic because they lead eventually to organisms like ourselves. We are made of organic molecules, uh -huh. um, a strong uh, carbon content. Um, uh, you know, uh, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen, they're our main constituents. That's basically what life is made of. Uh, so uh, the, uh, uh, the suggestion is that you might get really complex organic compounds. And I mean things like pyrene and, you know, stuff that you think of as artificially produced here on Earth, but they do occur in nature as well. And um, you, you might well get these molecules forming in in the in the winds blown in the atmospheres of these highly evolved or ancient stars and well a team at the university of hawaii at manoa um, has looked which has a very strong astronomy group by the way I know them well um, that that uh, group has basically set up laboratory experiments which mimic the atmosphere of a red giant star the temperature and its chemical content and looked at the chemical reactions that are taking place in it and sure enough they get what one author has described as um, startling startlingly complex organic compounds uh, in the in these environments that simulate what it's like in the atmosphere of a of a star uh, that is at a late stage in its life and they include things like well, um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs, these are, these are a whole family of uh, really quite complex compounds. The simplest of them is naphthalene, uh, which is what you put into mothballs. Um, yep, yep. That, know that one. Um, but the, 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 there is one that um, um, is of great interest, pyrene, as I mentioned already. This is something that may be... Uh, a part of a precursor of, of life compounds, you know, things like the amino acids and the proteins and the things like that that we associate with life. Uh, they may result from some of these complex organic molecules. So th there is a kind of parallel story to this, um, Andrew, and that is that there is a space mission which uh, NASA has sent to uh, an asteroid by the name of Bennu, or Bennu, I can never remember which way you pronounce it, B-E-N-N-U. Um, that, uh, the spacecraft is called OSIRIS-REx. It will rendezvous with Bennu in 2023 and grab a sample of that asteroid. And one of the things that they're looking for is these complex organic molecules to see whether 
the early solar system was seeded with these things. And it's by collisions with asteroids like that with the Earth that the raw materials of life landed on Earth. So really quite remarkable science, um, which is in some ways in, in instructive to astronomers. The, one of the comments by one of the scientists working on this um, has said, what he said was, uh, this is a, a Dr. Kaiser, he says, most of the scientists dealing with polycyclic aromatic uh, compounds in space are astronomers. They are excellent spectroscopists, that means we can analyze the light very well, but by nature astronomy sometimes lacks fundamental knowledge about chemistry. And what he's saying is that we astronomers are hopeless at chemistry. And I think that is right on the money, because we we tend to think in a world that where temperatures are too high for chemical reactions to, to take place. But it's only in these cool atmospheres of these giant stars that the, the, the reactions that chemists are so familiar with and astronomers aren't uh, can actually happen. So it's an interesting combination of the sciences with some very interesting potential results. And I think we'll, we'll hear more about all this, uh, you know, the, the fact that these complex organic molecules are out there. Uh, a few of your colleagues just texted me and said, speak for yourself, Fred. But, um, yeah, I think I know where you're coming from. But uh, so I, mean, I was going to ask the question. So if, if these chemicals are blown off red giant stars by stellar winds, where did we come from? But um, that would be impossible to answer, I imagine. Well, yeah, there are all kinds of theory is correct. Yes, so so they, they they're blown off by stellar winds. They they interact with the uh, the raw material from which the solar system was formed, which is basically clouds of dust. So it happened a long time ago. It happened a very long time ago. That's so it right. stands to reason that if it happened a long time ago, it happened in a concentrated, more concentrated environment, and therefore the likelihood of this replicating in other parts of the universe is more likely exactly yeah it's almost certainly the case just mm -hmm. as almost certainly the case for your golf swing is due to dark matter the two are intimately related yes well you know um, i mean there's there's some kind of urethane in a golf ball and it's there is a, <laughs> yes and let me tell you there's no life in that no. <laughs> it's a dead zone but anyway uh no that's fascinating and um i i can't wait to find out what they find with that asteroid because uh, if if that is indeed uh, where life may well begin in some form, uh, it's very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we we already know from analysis of uh, of the contents of things like Comet of Grassimenko that there are rich organic molecules in the ices of these comets. So it shouldn't be really any surprise if we find these really complex molecules lurking on asteroids as well. And that might be how they found their way to Earth, you know, okay. three four billion years ago. Indeed. Um, watch this space. As we do every week, we're always watching space. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Uh, apologies, too, for the glitches, if you've noticed them during this uh, particular podcast. We're recording at a different time and everybody's watching Netflix. I mean, nothing we can do about it, really. But <laughs> that's life. Especially we should just Australian, go and watch Netflix. <laughs> especially with the Australian internet system. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Uh, thank you, Fred. Lovely to talk to you, as always. Great pleasure, Andrew, and we will speak again next week, I hope. We will indeed. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Keep your cards and letters rolling in. 
uh, if you're really old. Otherwise, just use the internet uh, if you can get it to work and send us uh, your questions and your ideas and your thoughts and your photos. Some people send us some great photos and we'd love to hear from you via our Facebook or Twitter feeds or um, any other way you care to communicate. Stick it in a bottle and throw it in the ocean. People still do that. I don't know when we'll get it, but we'll, <laughs> we'll keep an eye out. I'm only 400 miles from the coast. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast known as Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.